0: Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now
1: entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Asmahan Razavi, and I am joined by Darren Krauss and Jeremy Zhao, we want to begin our podcast by recognizing that we live, work, and record this podcast uh, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, including the Siksika, the Kainai, and the Pikani, Sutina, the Stoney Nakoda Nations, Métis Nation Region Three, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty Seven Region of Southern Alberta. So, uh, it has been a while since we've recorded. So. As everybody who's even halfway paying attention to Calgary politics, Alberta politics knows, a lot has happened. So we're going to try to delve into as much of it as possible in our uh, you know, more long-form segment section of the podcast, but we still have hot takes. How could we not have hot takes? And I'm going to throw it over to you, Jeremy, for the first one.
0: Yeah, it has been a while. We were supposed to originally record on the day of the BC municipal elections. That was like winter, winter festivity extravaganza day. And wow. The I, I know we're veering off Alberta politics here, but what a wild ride for us. a significant portion of the province, you know, here on Vancouver Island. We had so much change. We had one, uh, the city of Langford. The comp- except for one incumbent, the entire city council was wiped out and replaced with newcomers. And in in Victoria proper, there was also a huge uh, change on council as well. So significant change just across the board. And I really wanted to highlight how excited I was to see just the amount of differences and nuances and, and craziness that happens over in the West Coast.
1: I actually think there is a little bit of relevancy to Alberta, maybe more than a little bit. I was paying attention to the Vancouver municipal race because it, I lived there for a while. And it was interesting to me that most of the progressive counselors and the sort of progressive mayor was ousted. And, uh, you know, in Vancouver, there was a lot of discussion around like safety and uh, what that meant for people living in the city and housing prices, of course, and is, is a big thing as well. And I think part of the reaction is that people felt that the more, you know, progressive council wasn't like adequately paying attention to these issues. So for me, it's a bit of a cautionary tale to progressive politicians around the country who are dealing with things like safety and, uh, you know, housing prices, cost of living, affordability. It seems like maybe the messaging isn't quite there. Yeah, I think it's a a bit of a cautionary tale.
2: Cautionary tale is a great way to put it, Esmahan, because Shortly after the elections, um, I, I believe I was listening to, to QR 77. It might have actually been Shea Ganim. I'm, I'm I'm not sure. But he had somebody on who said exactly the same thing. We've got uh, potential municipal elections, you know, happening in, in various locales across the country, but also provincial elections coming up. And crime and safety is on a lot of people's minds, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic. There were some things that kind of, maybe slipped through the cracks maybe that's not the appropriate way to put it but it was really that sort of exactly as you put it a a cautionary tale so uh, I do think that more politicians need to pay attention to maybe not crime and safety like in a hardcore way but at least the perception of crime and safety in our cities
1: yeah and I, I don't want to make this a super hot super long hot take but um I think there needs to be some kind of like a recognition that people are feeling unsafe. And of course, like there is an understanding that there are like underlying issues and those are the issues that need to be addressed if we really, you know, want people to feel safe in communities. But somehow, progressive uh, politicians, I think, need to figure out how to communicate on this issue better because they are paying for it at the polls and they might pay for it at the polls in the US too. Okay, so I have a hot take. I am devastated by the fact that three bears were euthanized. Four, four were, all four of them. I thought they only caught the three. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, four, that's even like more heartbreaking. So bears were spotted in the Discovery Ridge, Griffith Woods Park area of the city. Understandably, people were, you know, nervous about their, uh, about their safety. Uh, I have family in the area and they were a little bit nervous about taking the little dog out for a walk in the dark. But unfortunately, uh, the result was that, uh, and I hate this term, the four bears were destroyed. I absolutely hate that term. So I saw that, you know, uh, Councillor Penner and, and Councillor Koopmans were saying how awful it is that that happened. And we need to find alternate solutions. But like, there's a part of me that's like, oh, we are building out and out, and you know, these are like some of this is like the uh, habit, 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 habitats of, of wild animals, and I hope that this is not something that we see more of in the future because it is so sad to lose four poor, you know, healthy bears.
2: It is really sad. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk with, and I know I'm going to get his name wrong as I try to say it fast. Anil Tahiliani. Who is the president of the discovery ridge community association and he said and and this just puts a little bit of perspective he said he's lived in the community for 15 years and there's always been bear sightings this is the first time where bears have come into the community and although he wouldn't lay it necessarily at the feet of some residents what he did say was we posted information we posted education. We tried to share with people what needed to be done. And he said some people may not have got the message. Some people may have not done what we had suggested them to do. Councillor Penner was a little bit more straightforward. And she said it was willful ignorance on the part of some people. Uh, The province does have a very robust bear smart program that I think that they use in Canmore, they use in in Banff and other areas where there's there's wildlife conflict that's there. I think the reality is we that there's probably going to be more of this uh, especially as Calgary continues to move out because even though it's slowed, we are still moving out into some of these areas. But particularly in that corner of Calgary, it backs right onto a park that is in a common wildlife corridor. So I don't want to say it was an isolated incident because there are sightings, but I think that people really need to take a little bit of responsibility. Otherwise, we may end up with with rules like they have in in Canmore, where everything has to be in bare, safe enclosures and you can no longer plant fruit trees in your yards.
1: Okay, Darren, you have a hot take too.
2: Oh, I do. Uh, Mine's gonna be really, really super short. I I ask this question regularly of counselors every time something budget-worthy comes up. So the city of Calgary wants a 3.8% increase to the budget plus 1.2-ish percent for development and redevelopment. So a a 5% overall total growth for the budget. Yet there are so many different asks, whether it's fire, whether it's climate, whether it's downtown, whether it's tomorrow's Chinatown, whether it's transit. And the police, as we reported in Livewire Calgary, they want more money as well. And I just don't see how the city is going to be able to manage to get this all in to meet everybody's needs and still keep that budget growth at 5%. I, I just don't see it happening. So it'll make for an interesting budget debate. We are going to get a look at the budget uh, Monday. Uh, I know we're dating us, but that will be what, uh, November 7th. We're going to get a copy of it. We're not going to be able to report on it until Tuesday, but uh, we will be able to see some of the things that are going on there.
1: It's interesting because it's kind of almost like the first real budget exercise for this council, I would say, right? Um, they were uh, elected almost a year ago. And I, I uh, this is the, the first one that they've really had the time to like sink their teeth into. So we shall see. Um, we'll, we'll read live wire for all the details on Tuesday, Darren. have a whole laundry list of things to talk about. Exciting podcast times. I'm going to suggest we start by talking about Danielle Smith and then let the conversation go where it may. You know, I know a lot of people are talking about Danielle Smith in the context of polling that's come out, in the context of the Medicine Hat, Brooks Brooks Medicine Hat by-election, and the context of so much going on. But there is a, a lot of municipal re- relevance as well. Um, She's commented in support of the ARENA uh, which, you know, negotiations are are beginning anew with that at the UCP convention, which took place. Uh, uh, you know, um, I don't want to date the podcast, but uh, just before the podcast, uh, there was a discussion about councillors and, and mayors being listed as uh, municipal, as, as lobbyists when engaging with the provincial government, by the way. They're kind of a creature of the provincial government. So it's a, it's a strange, strange ask. So lots to talk about with Smith. Does anybody want to go first?
0: I can, maybe you can chime in and say, <laughs> there's so many mixed messages, I guess, you know, now that I step out of the province and and, and look from the outside, you have her supporting the event center. But you kind of have her sending signals of you know how she's going to deal with healthcare related subject matter or COVID related matters. This mixed messaging, I guess, would be very confusing for people who would want to move to Alberta or want would want to you know live in a city like Edmonton or Calgary. And I can tell you very upfront, when I read the Times Colonist, the articles about the new premier of Alberta aren't always the most flattering. There's a always definitely a bias towards you know Alberta being this kind of regressive province that always looks a little bit dated or backwards in terms of uh, politics and policy.
2: They aren't really that flattering out here right now either, Jeremy.
0: <laughs> so I I I'm always very confused about the message. Perhaps the the new premier is is sending uh, obviously a, a a big 180 from the previous premier who didn't have the greatest of ratings already
1: uh yeah it's uh to to darren's point it's not exactly like her first three weeks have gone particularly well out here or have been received particularly well out here in alberta either and i think it is a, it's a worrying time because the province had and the city frankly has been trying to do a lot of work to attract people to live here uh, to attract young people to change out Calgary's reputation or or shore it up in different ways so her comments and stuff are are definitely not helping but I mean I think there is like I am confused about the approach to municipalities as well uh I think before she, Won the leadership race, and I think we've talked about this before. You know, there was this idea that Danielle Smith would focus mostly on on rural communities and would. Uh, ignore Edmonton and Calgary and, and even maybe, you know, use them as a bit of like, kind of use them as like the the way she's using Ottawa, right. As kind of like an enemy, a common enemy that perhaps people here can unite against and, uh, you know, blame all their problems on uh, and then uh, and use that to gain popularity. And I do think it's interesting that in light of that, she has shown support for the event center. That to me is like an interesting thing move. But I also think the fact that uh, we were seeing this resolution pa- passed in the UCP convention that would basically make municipal officials lobbyists kind of speaks to the t- deterioration of inter-provincial of municipal relations that I think happened, or, well, at least I noticed it during the Kenny government, you know, when I think Doug Schweitzer called Nenshi like Trudeau's mayor. And so there were other comments like that. So there's like a real kind of like urban versus province thing happening that that I think is being exacerbated by Danielle Smith right now.
2: Premieres are often, you often look back on them in a certain way or they're characterized by a certain thing. Ralph Klein, let's say, was that Frank speaking politician made those comments outside the St. Louis, you know, j- j- just a very straightforward politician. You have somebody like Alison Redford. You remember her for opulence in the Sky Palace and and Ed Stelmack, maybe for being a little bit dithering, you know, um, but still, you know, a, a, a very steady premier. Unfortunately, I think Danielle Smith is going to be remembered because I'm not exactly certain what her political future is with an election coming up in May, but she may be remembered as a premier who actually had some really good ideas, but got overshadowed by her totally goofy ideas. For example, let's give back pay to the people who were left out of their jobs due to being unvaccinated, uh, or I mean this this lobbyist thing. I mean, come on, but yet she's got some great ideas. Like let's give the cities back the education portion of the property tax. Like that's a, that's actually a really good idea that I think Mayor Gondek even told me that that she could get behind. So there are a lot of really good ideas here, really good policy ideas. That are mixed up with some absolutely stupid ideas. And unfortunately, I think that's where people get into this whole thing with Danielle Smith about, about <laughs> well, I, I think even she may have said herself that her staff in the past have had to tell her to control the crazy or something like that um, because she goes down <laughs> Did I almost hear you snort, Esma?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, of course not.
2: (laughs) Um, But I I mean, you cannot buy into every internet conspiracy because you think, oh my goodness, this is the absolute truth and then buy into it and then run with it and then create government policy around it. It just doesn't work that way. So unfortunately, some of these things are going to fall by the wayside. I will say on the specific municipal issue of the event center or the arena deal, I think this is a straight up political play that she knows the only way that she is going to win Calgary seats and be the premier for another four years is if she wins Calgary seats. And she believes, or at least her advisors believe, that the way to do that is by greasing the wheels for an arena deal here in Calgary. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But I mean, considering that Jason Kenney wouldn't even give the project the time of day in his tenure, uh, I think it says a lot when she opens within the first month of her premiership that this is something she would support.
1: I think that's a a really good point. Like, I think that you're right. I think it is a total political move. It's intended to kind of like, bring back or shore up some of that support in Calgary. And I think maybe if we were living in a province that had no other problems, that would be fine because people would be like, you know, I really do want an arena. I would like to go see someone in concert uh, in the near future. But the reality is, and there and there has been, you know, provincial polling that's come out uh, in the last few weeks. Albertans are worried about their health care. They're worried about jobs. They're worried about cost of living. And, like, I think that, you know, if you're a, a, the premier and you're not speaking to these issues as as your bread and butter issues and you're talking about things that are kind of like, They're just not what people are living on a day-to-day basis, right? Like talking about the arena or talking about the sovereignty act, like those are not things that impact people's daily lives when people are actually like really struggling and in different ways. So I don't know how well this is going to work as a strategy.
0: What a weird world that we're living in where, you know, a premier of a primarily conservative province would... Be okay with lots of capital spending but for example now i guess almost former premier john horrigan had to backtrack on his 800 million dollar royal bc museum upgrade the, the recently they decided not to go ahead with the olympic bid because they just said we don't have the money we have other things to tackle right now i just find that fascinating
2: you know i just want to add one more thing and i think it i'm pretty sure it was Kristen raworth she had a tweet about the recent debate that happened in Brooks Medicine Hat and she said something along the lines of oh my if Danielle Smith comes out in the upcoming election as articulate as fact-based and as reasonable sounding as she does in the debate tonight the UCP could win something along those lines and it that's really interesting maybe there's a there's a persona there that she puts forward when you know she's she's trying to do policy things because i actually think she's she's extremely smart and extremely politically astute i think where it goes a little bit off the rails is is when she's trying to pander to a certain base of people because she believes that's the way that she's going to get elected i i just thought that was an interesting tweet that I saw that I would throw in here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't think we we should forget that she comes from this like broadcasting background. She's obviously a really skilled communicator because of that. I think your point is right. I mean, like not to go too far off the rails and I just used your term. You just use that one, Darren, but like, you know, if we're living in a time where and I'll I'll just speak about one party right now, the Conservative Party, but where it's kind of like two parties in one, and there's this real tension about how to hold the party together. And you kind of have to like she kind of won by speaking more to that uh, I would say like far right wing base of the party. Then like what does that mean when you're trying to communicate to a general election audience? And can you thread the needle and talk out of both sides of your mouth uh, effectively? I don't know if. I mean, maybe you can, but I don't know. I think Kenny has shown that you actually can't really do that. And so has Aaron O'Toole. Like the at a certain point, the center does not hold anymore. And there is like a, a real tension and 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 even a split. And I'm not saying the party is gonna split, but I just mean that like at a certain point you're alienating an audience that you need to win. Uh, And so I'm curious to see how she tries to navigate that over the next few months.
0: And I'm also interested in this dynamic of now Edmonton and Calgary have fairly progressive mayors, right, in a a fairly traditionally a conservative province. But we're kind of seeing the opposite in, in other big provinces, right? Ontario's now got more conservative mayors, I guess, being elected. Across uh, the same point as uh, Manu brought up with Vancouver now, uh, basically a a more right wing. Well, they have a party system there, so so he was elected in that way. So this dynamic between the stereotype of Alberta has always been very uh, conservative. Yet we have such progressive mayors. How does that play into the uh, 2023 election? Uh, I'm always fascinated by. That.
2: Jeremy, you just provided a really great segue into another one of those ideas from Premier Smith that can kind of take us more to the municipal side, and that is parties at the municipal level. Oh yes, <laughs> I love how Esma Hans, all oh, like she grabs her hair like, oh my god, yes, I remember. <laughs> no, uh, no, but. I, I mean, what do you guys think? Municipal, political parties. How does that work out? Like, is it just Vancouver? or Do they have that in Victoria too, Jeremy?
0: They do. And the the party, the slate that ran here was called Viva. And Capital Daily, kind of like the Livewire equivalent here in Victoria, did a, a very detailed piece about their deep ties with the PPC in the far right wing. And they ended up getting a very low percentage of votes, but it was very polarizing to get slate. But the previous election, they had a Together Victoria, I think, slate that was very progressive movement. And there were three candidates, and I think three or four, all four of them won and were elected to council that way. So there is a uh, the ability to run as slates in Victoria as well.
2: Esmahan, do you like the idea of municipal parties in Calgary? At the municipal I hate it.
1: Level? I hate it. Like as someone like, you know, when I, first of all, when I moved to Vancouver, I was so confused by their uh, municipal system because they don't have a ward system there either, which like is like wild to me. I was like, who do I call if there's a pothole, just any random counselor. But I don't think that's, I don't think she's taking it in that direction. I just love the idea that in municipal politics. People can kind of come together around shared values. And like, you know, you might have, like, let's let's face it, we do characterize certain counselors as progressive and certain counselors as conservative. Those lines do exist in an informal way, but I think the lack of partisanship in some Like at least at the municipal level, allows for there to be some collaboration uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily exist elsewhere. And I think that it would be a real shame if we took that away. And I'm not sure how successful parties are in um, municipal politics anyway. Like, Because in Vancouver, there was this party called Vision Vancouver that was like the party. It was like kind of like, you know, the natural governing party in some way of Vancouver. And then they had like a total implosion and like disappeared. Now they're gone and this new party came up and it's just, I don't know. I'm not a fan. Are you?
2: No, I'm not a fan either for all of the same reasons that you had pointed out. So no sense me like retreading over that, but I, I reached out to Jack Lucas, who's a political scientist with the University of Calgary on this, and, and he had some quick thoughts. And he said, yeah, we may not love the, the idea of the party system at, at the municipal level, but just like you can at the provincial level or even the federal level, you can always have independence, right? They can, Independence can run. I didn't get the chance because... Jack was going out of the country or or off to a to, to a conference or something like that. Um, I didn't get the chance to say yeah, but the money goes behind the parties, and that's where the real issue is. Not all of us have name brand, or or, or not all of the politicians have na- name brand in order to pull off an independent victory. So I think it would be highly unlikely for anybody outside of a party to be able to gain a seat in a municipal election. I feel like if you poked
0: Dr. Lucas's brain a little bit more, he'd go, well, look at what happened when we changed the municipal election funding uh, laws and how all that money just channeled from the candidate to the third party advertisers or, or groups that were developed during the election and how they u- utilize the pool of money to support their preferred slate or uh, their preferred list of candidates. It uh, I mean, it it became a de facto, basically, uh, slate at the end of the day. And I would be very interested to hear his thoughts on that shift.
1: Something about party politics for me also lends itself to like more of a professionalization of the whole campaign process. When you run municipally, you don't have... You kind of have to create everything yourself, right? There's no platform template. There is no branding template. Like you're just kind of adrift at sea trying to like put everything together to create your own campaign. Whereas when you run with a party, all these things are already in place for you and you can just kind of focus on like the voter contact piece and, and meeting as many people as possible. And then I guess like parties, I'm I'm getting to a point. Parties also like vet their candidates, right? So uh, which doesn't really happen municipally. And I think that there were some instances that were like a little uh, strange uh, in in previous municipal elections where you had people running who, for example, I remember there was a person who ran for trustee who you have to be a Canadian citizen to run. But then it came out after she won that she was not a Canadian citizen. So, I mean, like, I think those things are like vetted by parties. So is, there is a, like, yeah, so, some aspect of professionalization. And I don't know if, I, if we want to go here yet. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because, you know, counselor conduct can be quite interesting. And if you had a party system, perhaps there would be a mechanism to reprimand some of the conduct that we are seeing uh, in council. Did you like that? Like long-winded segue?
2: We'll use it, except for, I just want to say the other aspect to the vetting is that you streamline and all of a sudden you've got, let's just call them progressive and conservative candidates. And you don't have an opportunity for those people who might be a thousand times better candidates than the progressive and the conservative come up and actually run a better campaign be a better person, actually embody more of the values of constituents. If you have a party system, you are basically eliminating all of that, we'll call it noise, necessary noise is, is maybe a better way to put it, but you eliminate all of that noise of the 14 other candidates in a in a ward or a riding. In order to accommodate just the party system. And to that end, I love the idea of somebody coming up and, and winning maybe with 25 to 30% of the vote and having to make sure that they govern for everybody in that ward as opposed to winning by 80% and having a, a runaway and they can do whatever they want.
1: Yeah.
2: But counselor conduct.
1: I agree. Yeah. Counselor conduct. So speaking of counselor conduct, an anonymous account released a video in which what appears who appears to be Dan McLean is sitting at a table uh, with a few other people, including who appear to be Jonathan Dennis and uh, perhaps Craig Chandler. And in the video, there are prank calls being made with what appear to be sort of a a put-on Indigenous accent, right, Uh, saying, like, some misogynistic and and terrible things. So that video circulated, uh, made the rounds, and uh, in council, Dan McLean uh, apologized. Before that, he he did a video um, where he, you know, uh, he didn't apologize directly for what he did. He said something like, and I apologize for not knowing the quote, but something like, you know, I, I re- there are some things in my past that I regret. And uh, he made a pretty egregious comment, which was like, I've had an indigenous girlfriend. I find that extremely, extremely offensive. Yeah, anyway, he came to council, he apologized. He voluntarily took himself off of committees. Counselor conduct, what do you guys think?
0: Interesting, because one counselor is now voluntarily stepping down from all of the committees that he uh was appointed to or elected to and another one Councilor chu uh be due to you know limits in what the mayor and council can do in terms of reprimand or 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 their powers he is now back on basically the the rounds of whatever uh committees or 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 boards that he's appointed to or elected to again. So, you know, if, if I were to compare the two alleged or or what appears to be a uh, you know alleged misconducts of these two particular counselors, one would say, you know, there there was one that was definitely more uh, serious and the other one, I, I'm I'm not downplaying the the seriousness of it, but the actions of what a counselor is doing to make amends is very stark between the two. Very, very stark.
2: I, I think that brings up an interesting point, Jeremy, and something that I talked with Mayor Gondek about today, and that is it doesn't matter what the offense is to a certain degree. Calgary City Council only has a limited menu of options at their disposal when dealing with, with counselors, There is a very specific set of consequences for unethical or undesirable behaviour. I think that frustrates the mayor. I think it probably frustrates council. While I agree, we're talking about two situations where the gravity of what's been done is, is different. I think the fact that they're left with a situation where they go, well, Councillor Sean Chu has to earn his paycheck, so we might as well put him on committees and boards and commissions. I, I, I think that's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate that, that, that those are the only options we're left with when councillors do not conduct themselves or haven't conducted themselves appropriately. I think that's a real failing of the system.
1: I totally agree. I mean, we're living in a time where trust in politicians is at the lowest that it's been in in history, I guess, so long as you could pull these type of types of things to have a system where people can act so egregiously and then face like, if, you know, you know how people love to say, Government were a business, then like we would run it X, Y, and Z. Yeah, if government were a business, a lot of these people would be fired or be like put on leave with no pay. Frankly speaking, right? But somehow we as citizens, and I think, I mean, I don't think I'm naive in saying this. Like when I vote for someone, I expect that they recognize that as an elected official, they will be held to a higher standard of of conduct, a standard of conduct that I think like reflects the gravity of the fact that they're they're entrusted to behave in a certain way, and to behave ethically, to behave in a way that is like non-discriminatory as representatives of our votes or whatever, you know, to kind of go into voting with that sort of faith and then to see that faith violated in different ways and to know that there is no mechanism to, to address that. And you just kind of have like people, okay, like whatever they're doing, whatever. And then they just take one apology, don't do it well, do another apology. And then, uh, and then you know, they're like, okay, well, I'm not going to be on boards and commissions. Okay, sure. But like, is that I don't, I don't think that's an adequate solution at all.
0: I, I guess my question here is, has, has the concept or the installation of the integrity commissioner been effective, right? We've seen kind of Giancarlo Carrà uh, encounter some of the uh, issues that have come up, you know, he's had to step down from the, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the police commission because of his alleged incident and i and there was also the 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 previously we talked about the uh, the the incident around him uh, with the conflict of interest with his property as well so has that integrity commissioner been effective i mean they they've identified certain deficiencies but what has that led to beyond not being on the board and still getting paid
2: well that's the interesting thing is that i actually think the integrity commissioner and the ethics advisor have done a really good job in not only advising counsel in where they're overstepping bounds, but they've also investigated a number of these claims or a number of these incidents that that, that people have, have reported. And the problem isn't in the integrity commissioner or the ethics advisor. The problem is in the latitude they have to implement sanctions. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes under the The Municipal Government Act, and that's where the problem lies. With that said, the mayor did remind me today when we chatted that the Recall Act, she said she believes it comes into effect later this spring. Should there be, well, I don't know how many they need, something around like 68,000 people to petition for Sean Chu's removal, They could remove Sean Chu if they wanted to. I don't think that'll happen in the case of Dan McLean, but I don't know. I mean, DJ Kelly pulled, I think, probably about 30% of the vote. Could another 38% of the entire population in Ward 4 turn on Sean Chu? I think it's highly unlikely, but that option is there.
1: Yeah, the recall act, which I I don't feel great about. I mean, I I wish there were like, uh, again, like I wish there were alternate mechanisms to deal with this kind of thing. and I think it's just disappointing to know that you know this is a this is like kind of conduct that can can go relatively unpunished, but I don't want to get punitive. I don't want to get punitive here. <laughs>
2: Speaking of possibilities, I really want to get this in here only because for some reason, this has created an abnormal buzz. And that is this idea of the city of Calgary financing like $168 million for electric buses. And I don't know what it is about this topic, but it really drives people mad for two reasons. Number one, they're like, Electric buses, electric buses, let's do all electric buses. And then on the flip side, it's like 168 million for a technology that's not been proven. And what about the infrastructure and blah, 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 blah. Like, like in my mind, the electric bus situation here in Calgary is the epitome of the divide that we have in our city between, I don't care the right and the left, that's just what we'll call it. How about we just take a look at this from a pragmatic point of view and we go, look, it costs less to operate these buses. Yes, we are gonna have to put up some money. Yes, we are gonna have to build some infrastructure, but in the long run, all the studies that have been done over the past 25 years about electric buses have shown these things repay themselves. They're better than diesel buses overall. Like, why is it such a divisive issue? Uh, but at the,
0: I don't get it because there's already federal legislation. Is it legislation or regulation in place to have all new vehicles be electric by a certain date, anyways? So the depreciation for your traditional internal combustion engine is only going to get worse with this new legislation in place anyways and i believe what was the trade off it's like for every dollar we spend we get four 4 dollars back or three something like that right so from a from a budget standpoint i i don't see any downsides And from a legislative standpoint you you're bound by it anyways in the long term
2: sorry asman i know you want to chime in here the big difference is, is that when you buy a diesel bus all it does is depreciate there is there is no actual payback whereas the payback with electric sure it costs a little bit more up front sure you got to build the infrastructure but the thing is you're not paying fuel costs constantly and you're not at the whims of what will likely be higher fuel prices down the road 2 dollars a liter Maybe, maybe $2.20 a liter like it has been uh, around other parts of Canada. That's the reality of of where we're going. And the fact that, that folks can't see it, along with what you said, Jeremy, about that we're trying to phase this stuff out, to me, it just seems like obvious. Not to mention the fact that the financing that the City of Calgary is doing, all of the money that they're saving is going to be there to pay back That loan that they're going to get, so that there it's it's actually almost free buses for the city of Calgary. They're going to get another three hundred million dollars of federal grants or 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 whatever to pay for the buses, and we're going to be able to pay everything back over the course of I think it's ten or fifteen years through the savings that we get from using these buses. So they literally are free buses that we're getting just by entering into this agreement.
1: Like you would know this more than me, Darren, but I don't know that this is like unique to this situation at all it does feel like just commenting on like the state of politics there's so much information this misinformation I should say around issues like this and those are the things that end up driving the conversation and I think it comes from a place of like fear and anger and and things like that but it makes it really hard to have like actual policy discussions about things like this because what you like what we what we actually want to debate is totally obscured by like things that are untrue. Right. So I think that's a little bit concerning for me because uh, I I worry that like good ideas like this uh, will be lost because there's so much vitriol.
0: And I want to add that interest rate is like 1% or something that it's like super low loan from the uh, infrastructure bank. Is that located in Calgary? I forget. Or maybe, maybe I misinterpreted there. They had some bank.
2: Maybe it's the Russians. Maybe
0: uh-huh. <laughs> Their influence. <laughs> As
2: like,
1: Allegedly. Legal issues. Legal <laughs> yeah. issues, Darren. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> Allegedly. How many times did I say that this podcast? <laughs> Take a um, shot every time.
2: Yeah. Hey, let's get, can we finish off on a, on a happy note with, the James Short Park and Parkade being changed to Harmony Park for a lot of reasons. I think this is a really good news story, not to mention, I I mean, just on the surface, this is a a situation where the Chinese community in Calgary had a lot of input on this park and the renaming, of course, James Short. uh, He did have, he did have an influence in Calgary and and he was uh, a prominent early Calgarian, and and he did contribute to society. But what he also did was he uh, fomented anti-Chinese racism here in the city of Calgary, and he wanted to prevent uh, Chinese business people from from operating in the city. I think that the the city of Calgary first their admission that they made a mistake in 1991 naming. James Short Park, especially with its proximity to Chinatown, I think is a really, really good step. But the thing that really sticks out to me in all of this, again, I talked to the mayor today about this, and I think it could be a real blueprint for how the city of Calgary does public engagement down the road, is in this particular situation, they actually went out to the community, they listened to the community, And they acted on what the community said. And if we can apply this to all different areas, whether it's planning, whether it's parks, whether it's snow and roads, I think the city of Calgary could have a real breakthrough. And I don't want that to overshadow the importance of the anti-racism message here, but I think for me, taking a look at the the global issues at the city of Calgary, I think that really stands out how much they engaged with and how much they listened to Calgary's Chinese community and then acted on it.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really heartwarming story. It's evidence that, you know, change can happen in a way that is actually quite pleasant and takes into account the feelings of communities that are historically Marginalized and and things like that. I'm going to make a very flippant comment. I don't know. Can we just like not name things after people anymore? Like I love names like Harmony or whatever. I just think it's I don't know
2: nostalgia. Uh, maybe, a slightly
1: yeah. flippant, slightly flippant. So yeah.
2: What about names like nostalgia? The community of nostalgia.
1: No. no, but like it wouldn't be any better naming it after a person. There are other things we can do. You know, some creativity in naming people. Some creativity in names.
2: Jeremy, I don't want to put you on the spot, but did, did, did this impact you at all? Like, like, did you at all see this story as, as important to you or.
0: I, I, first comment I think I'll make is, uh, it was, it was, uh, very nice for counselor Terry Wong to kind of tweet out to say, Hey, thanks Drew Farrell for, you know, starting this process. Um, I thought that was a really nice gesture from the current, you know, ward seven counselor to the. The previous counselor to to do that, so I I did appreciate that kind of coming together um, situation. I guess for me, it's been interesting. You know, there were there was this uh, University of Calgary, I believe, project. I I, I don't know if it's the University of Calgary, but there was this thing about the kind of the history of Chinatown. I was looking into that uh, mentioned uh, the history of that. The history of Chinatown is very interesting because Chinatown physically moved. To its current location. It was not at its original location and it had to move there because of said racism within the city that forced a lot of the shop owners and, and tenants out of their previous location, which I believe was somewhere on 9th Ave. For me, it's it's a little bit heartbreaking as well, because it probably means a lot more to the current residents and tenants within Chinatown who are a lot older who perhaps has a lot more institutional knowledge for younger folks like myself, to be honest, minus if I'm not, it's a generalization of a comment, but for a lot of us, we're not really paying attention to a lot of this history and as to why we're doing it. I think it really needs to be uh, a more evident, you know, in Victoria, there is a, a Chinatown museum located right in the heart of Chinatown that goes through a lot of the struggles that the Chinese community had to go through. In terms of, you know, the head tax, racism in general, issues around, you know, and and sometimes it it branches out further into, you know, treatment of, it's not Chinese per se, but treatment of, you know, the Japanese during the World War. You know, that Asian mentality, and it's, re- and it's really striking, particularly during COVID, the amount of anti-Asian hate that we saw, uh, I think means a lot more to myself in particular, because I felt that negative energy too, and to see this transformation and to kind of hopefully put kind of that COVID anti-Asian hate mentality and to kind of move forward with a move like this, I think is, it needs more coverage. Unfortunately, we just don't talk about it as much. And, and that is a little bit
2: heartbreaking, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jeremy. I, I, I don't really know how to, Yeah. That was profound.
2: Oh, it was supposed to be a happy segment. Yeah,
1: I know. I'm like, oh,
2: my. <laughs> I'm I'm I don't know if you have any talk. thoughts on this. Well, no, I, you know what? I, I appreciate it. And, and, and that's why I asked the question because, because, You've got two people and and although, you know, the lived experience of racism is, it's not apparent to me, again, my conversation with the mayor today, she's like, Darren, you haven't lived like me, you haven't, you haven't dealt with the things like me. Um, Esmahan can probably identify a little bit more with you, but I've never had to, I've never had to deal with that. And that, and, and, and that's why I wanted to know the importance uh, and, and like whether or not something like this matters and whether the name change is important and whether whether Calgary is actually making the right steps uh, to be an anti-racist city and 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 if this is a good sign because I like I I legit don't know I I think this is good and and maybe I'm maybe I'm not right maybe this is maybe this is just window dressing
0: Maybe I'll add one more comment in my my fear. And I think a lot of people's fears as well and, is that we will will eventually lose that Chinatown. Like eventually it will go away because a lot of the people there have been there for years and now they're retiring. You see news articles after news articles of you know the restaurants that have been there for a very long time. For example, Golden Inn, you know, it's been there for like 30, 40 years. They're retiring, they're gone. And eventually it will be you know, it, it may be gentrified, it may have new business owners and new tenants, and that's okay, but it's a little bit sad that perhaps eventually one day it will all disappear and we don't we don't get to understand why, you know, it was changed from James Short to Harmony Park now, right? I, I, I always have that fear of losing that culture, losing the language, losing the traditions, losing the sights and smells of Chinatown because it is slowly going away.
1: That's really sad. I mean, I guess like, that's something that I hadn't really considered that that would happen because I've always like I've had the privilege of always living somewhere where there was like a pretty robust Chinatown and like where you can go. And like you said, Jeremy, like there are sights and smells and, and, and you hear like different, you know, you hear the language and, and you just like gain a different experience. And I think it's a super enriching experience for a lot of people to take part, to take part in. And, you know, it's, like, yeah, it would make me very sad if we lost things like that in in our city. And uh, I, I, like I, now I'm like, well, oh, what can we do to like, to not have that happen?
2: Everyone, I think Esma is getting a little bit wistful here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's
1: late. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little wistful, yeah. Well, not wistful, but also like, what can we do? You know, what can we, what can we do? And, and I think, um. Part of that is what you talked about, Darren. I mean, I like, you know, not obviously being from the Chinese community, but I'm really glad that they were really involved in this decision. Um, and I hope that there are ways that, you know, the city can continue to like consult cultural communities about decisions that are related to them or related to like the sense of community and and things like that, because those are voices that are not traditionally heard in council chambers, right? And, and, and to actually go out and seek those voices and center them in decisions like this is I think to your earlier point is how you build an anti-racist city, right? Whereas like, if these are like kind of like marginal voices that you kind of consider as you're making decisions, then we're not really going to have an inclusive city
2: that's the kind of ending I was looking for, (laughs) Esmahan.
1: I worked hard for that. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you for tuning in. I'm going to throw it to you for a second, Darren.
2: Yeah, you know, this is that one moment in the show where I go, look, we are a... Reader-funded operation. Uh, and honestly, we are funded primarily by community members. We want 500 people to donate 10 bucks a month. And you can do it at patreon.com livewirecalgary. There's also an option to make a one-time donation. And you can do that at livewirecalgary.com. Under the membership tab, Aaron Toombs and I, I have spent a lot of time building and fine tuning some of what the next iteration of Livewire Calgary is. And our focus right now is on the membership and, and what we're going to do to build a little bit of a community and how that community can have an impact moving forward. So if you're interested, if you if you want better journalism, if you want a better city, join up and sacrifice that $10 a month for a for better Calgary.
1: Thank you, Darren. I am a member (laughs) and it's, I've never regretted it. So thank you. Okay. So thank you so much for tuning in today. We hopefully won't leave the next episode too long, but in the meantime, if you do want to share your thoughts on municipal politics with us, and there's a lot to talk about right now, it feels like things in Alberta are constantly changing then you can find us all on Twitter. Darren is at Livewire_DK, underscore DK. Jeremy is at JZ from Calgary. And I'm at Esmahan YYC. Share your thoughts with us. We would love to hear them. But until then, we will talk to you next time.